I shut the door and I thought <laughs> I'll just take my shirt off until I looked in the mirror and this old dear is sat there going, oh, hello. And I'm going, Dumbo, 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 the basement. Uh, welcome to the Basement Podcast this week, including Free Sander, Dave Luck, and Colin Piper. Welcome back, Dave. Hello. I need, I need to explain. My neighbour has been sanding something for weeks. So I'm wondering if it's a bit like when people do that thing where they make ice sculptures, where actually, rather than sanding some floorboards, he's actually doing, you know, the world's biggest sort of Rembrandt or something. Um, how do you know, how do you know he's sanding, Dave? That's, that's very specific. Yeah, I mean, how do you, I mean, if you had, do you have a well, user Well, it's, it's a kind of regular power tool. I'm struggling to think yeah. out what else it would be. He may be a trainee dentist. I don't know. It could be anything. Yeah, he could just be actually mutilating people in a, in a very sort of consistent way. But you do way. live in Sheffield. I mean, there's, 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 I mean, I went to Sheffield once and someone pulled the windscreen wipers off my car. Are you sure you went at Longleat? <laughs> I mean, is that the oh, I just got that, Simon. That's gonna be a while. That's quite funny, actually. <laughs> I, I, you just you just offended was, all of Sheffield. Yeah. But I, <laughs> I was telling someone the other day that I have been in in, uh, in a Sheffield football ground with a stand full of West Ham fans singing their song about what they think of Northern people, and um, <laughs> I don't join in, and it's slightly rude. So that's that's a, a tad awkward after nearly 30 years up here <laughs> so we're reflecting once again dave with you and thank you for coming back again your first podcast by the way lots of people said lovely things about it and it even reminisced reverend tiff uh, and his cardboard oh, boxes God bless him. and those boxes were amazing weren't they dave i don't know if everybody understands that joke but please i mean i just well, thought it was the best thing ever if we can explain further that you know normally cardboard boxes they're not sort of high price ticket item are they you might even just be able to pick one up from aldi and just you know pop things in it but uh tiff in his wisdom decided that he was going to get this sort of bespoke furniture so that he could file things but made out of cardboard uh, i think the problem being that when you kind of mixed his cardboard um expensive cardboard item with the uh, damp conditions in the cellar that they kind of blended in a way um, that he didn't really expect, and it kind of, kind of uh, became less uh, less well defined as a box and less useful for storing things as time went on. At the end of the day, that's probably the most expensive set of shelving he's ever bought in his life. Who knows? We'll have he's to get. Tiff still got it, to be fair. <laughs> he's probably recycled it. Tiff, Tiff, thank you for listening to this podcast. Don't switch off at this point. We are, we, we do love you lots. Honestly, so, uh. Uh, Dave, we were just thinking about some of those other memories then from uh, long ago. And, um, you know, last time we, you know, we berated you slightly. And we just wondered if you had any stories that you would like to tell. Well, I was thinking about a couple of things from when I was doing the year team. Um, one of which was, Joel, if people remember my dear friend, Joel Lunt, um, Joel was known for being quite laid back. Um, so laid back that he actually turned up three days late for the start of the year, having got the dates wrong and gone camping, um, but also holding his ponytail because he'd oh, been told that he had to cut it off. 
The other thing Simon that I remember true? was... Is that a true story? Yeah, really? he had, yeah, he turned up holding it, going, here's a painter. The other <laughs> thing I remember, Simon, you may remember that as part of our sort of induction to, to the world of, uh, of the foundation, we, um, we got taken on a bit of a world tour of other facilities in the region which included a, um, a nursing home, oh, I yeah. think, in Western Supermare. The old Miller homes um, in Western Supermare, yeah. For some reason, Si, it wasn't quite your day, because the first thing that I remember is that a seagull plopped on you, um, <laughs> which we were very, very compassionate about and very supportive. And um, so obviously then you needed to sort of clean yourself up and probably use the amenities. And so in a perfectly normal, regular way, you went to a, a door, door that was mar marked toilet and you opened the door in a perfectly normal way to find that it was already occupied by a, one of the residents, bless you. So um, that, that was a day that the rest of us probably enjoyed slightly more than you did. But, um, but the, the, thing was, great days. the thing was, I actually hadn't noticed that residence. That was the hardest thing about this story. Was <laughs> the truth is, I hadn't noticed the resident until I got At in. What point did you notice? <laughs> and I, I shut the door and I thought, <laughs> I'll just take my shirt off until I looked in the mirror and this old dear is sat there going, Oh, hello. And I'm going, <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure from that point on, you handled it with a plum. Oh, man alive. Those are yes. That 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 story does bring out happy happy <laughs> memories. In fact, um, yeah. Well, but but Colin though, it, it was he. What was Colin like as a you know as a young person? Colin basically. Can I answer? No. No. Colin, Colin basically um sort of abused us. That's the main oh, thing God, I remember. Oh, Shut up, you um, idiot. <laughs> by um. By obviously being a man of great wisdom and charisma, you know, up front, doing all the yes. teaching and that, yes. um, I mostly just remember him laughing in my face when he beat me at pool at Hill House. Um, yeah. <laughs> I beat you at pool? Really? Yeah. Wow. It was a very <laughs> bad pool table. <laughs> I was really um, not very happy with the quality of the table. But I remember you just kind of dancing around and doing a bit of a jig and laughing very loudly in my face. Uh, wow. Dave, I've... I've Never won at pool. <laughs> You've got to give me, give me, give, cut me some slack here. I've been, I've been someone at pool. I'm going to do another lap of all. That was your moment. That was you peaking. <laughs> isn't it funny? Yeah. Isn't it, it is funny though when you look back and people remember stuff that other people don't remember. It, it, that, it, there is something about that, isn't there? That people, I remember genuinely my best man at my first wedding saying, telling this story about what I did once on this campsite. Everybody roared with laughter. And I looked at my wife and went, I don't actually remember that. I don't, I don't believe I was actually there. Do you know what I mean? What is this story? Do you know what I mean? And so um, it's always good to have a story that you can recollect over. So um, uh, welcome to the Basement Podcast Years. Yes, we're talking to Dave Luck. And we're doing a second part about his life and his son's life, Ben. Talking to Dave Luck on the Basement Podcast years. Dave, you, you spoke about Ben saying he'd lived six years, seven months, eight days, that he'd squeezed everything out of his life that he could. Nowhere was near long enough, but too precious for words. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of... Um, you can come up with lots of cliches about kids being brave, 
I think probably from my experience, having been on the cancer ward, kids are kind of just quite straightforward and they mostly just sort of get on with it. And I think Ben absolutely did. So, you know, that that's kind of part of how I remember him. Actually, even even when he was in the hospice and we had the the, the teacher that would come out for the kind of kids with visual impairments, he was still engaging and being chatty and being polite. So, so yeah, I mean, you kind of think him having such a short life is, is awful, but he made everything he could of the time that he had. It's good to hear, though, isn't it, Colin, when people actually do live their lives? I guess the biggest waste of time is people wasting their time, surely. Gosh, it, <laughs> I was going to say something terrible, though. Like, when you reach my age, <laughs> but it, it, it is interesting, actually. I often wondered what it was like to be old, and now I am old. I realised it's not too bad, actually, because life is not about quantity. It is about quality. Mm-hmm. And it, it is about, for me, it's about redeeming every moment, taking every moment into eternity. And that means enjoying it with God so you can enjoy it with God for all eternity. But it it, it, it is about... <laughs> I don't want to be flippant about this because it's it's a tragedy for someone to die at six years old. But having said that, the impact, the quality of life, these sorts of things, uh, yeah, I mean that that you can't put a price on that. That that's, you know, yeah, that's what it's all about actually. Now, in the end days, you and Louise took Ben to Bluebell. Explain a little bit about what that hospice was like and what it looked like and, and just give us a setting. Yeah, so it's uh, Bluebell Wood, Wood Hospice, which is just a couple of miles outside Sheffield, kind of being custom built to be a place where for, for some kids like Ben, it was an end of life thing. For other kids, it's a, a respite thing. I think one of the things I realised is if you don't have a child that's disabled, you don't necessarily see other disabled children. They can be quite segregated and their lives are very different. So you go in there and we, you also meet families who are just doing an amazing job with kids who've got sort of long-term disabilities and they're there for respite but it's an amazing place because it was just set up for those kids and for their families to be comfortable so we literally went one day and thought let's just sort of see is this going to be a good place for us to be and went wow this is just amazing let's kind of let's go and spend some time there because we knew that Ben was nearing the end and then I think we all just kind of thought, yeah, this is a good place to be. So literally we had a room, our son Joe had a room, other relatives that came to visit would then be given a room, totally kitted out to be a comfortable place, you know, home-cooked meals, just making that. I guess the point is that it was an environment absolutely designed for people to be able to focus on on their kids and to be looked after themselves. So. For us, in an awful situation, it was it was a, a good place to, to manage that from. And I think the one thing you said from your book was the fact that actually you and Louise got to be parents again rather yeah. than just carers. And I, I love the fact that actually that for me was like quite heartwarming because there's a moment where you knew your son was in the right place to be looked after, but actually you were being looked after uh, as Ooh. well within this situation. Yeah, I mean, one of the things for Louise who's amazing is that she almost became like a quasi nurse so the times where Ben was at home she was administering medication she'd learned how to do that she was administering the food that was basically kind of being you know fed like through a drip 
and stuff like that through a feeding tube. So then you don't have to do that stuff. You've just got people who are there 24 hours, you know, who are, you know, they want to be working there. They're trained nurses, but they've got a, you know, a heart to do that. So yeah, it does then mean that you can just think about, you know, being with your, well, with both children, which was actually really important. And actually to have a bit of time to ourselves to be able to, you know, go and have a walk up the hill that was behind the hospice and, you know, have a bit of time myself. So it allowed us to, I guess, like I say, to manage that situation rather than having to have that responsibility. You know, some people want to be at home and that's fine. I think one of the things for us is it meant that home in some way could be home. There was a little bit of a separation there, which was probably quite healthy for us. And at one point you even say it was like a surreal holiday camp. Well, yeah, because it was it was April, but we had a heat wave. So literally this place is like out in the um, in the countryside, just on the on the edge of a kind of Rotherham village. So, you, you know, every room looks out onto this sort of nice green area and, you know, got loads of play equipment for kids to go and play on. And you would get these rabbits, right? So you look out in the morning and there would be rabbits sort of hopping about and you would think, this is quite surreal. This is a really lovely place to be. But I guess it, it just added to the fact that it was a time where we could be quite comfortable and to some degree relax. And I know that sounds really weird, but part of the thing when you've got a child that's poorly is there's a lot of just hanging about. And when you've got a child that's really poorly, they're asleep a lot of the time so actually the ability to be able to sort of down tools a bit and like I said walk up a hill just go and have a cup of tea you know being some way a little bit normal it kind of enabled that I guess in a way that you're not really going to have that at home and you're not going to have that in hospital they do their best in hospitals but hospitals are hospital you know they're not cheerful environments. Colin your experience of a hospice? Well, it's so funny hearing all this. Well, I haven't got much experience with hospices, if I'm honest with you. But hearing this, I um, seem to be walking this road with, uh, with friends who have lost or are losing kids uh, pretty much every year. Just hearing what you were just saying there, Dave, about the waiting and the hanging around. And, and uh, for many of them, they, they've, they've so struggled because they haven't known what to do. You know, life, some of them, you know, this goes on for years and years and it's exhausting because you, you don't know, you're, you, you feel guilty about enjoying life because how can you, you know, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. So to have a context to actually go through this really painful experience a context like that as I'm hearing you Dave I just I just think that's that's just amazing that's just that's just fantastic and I you know the more I hear about this stuff the more I realize just how we need to be at the cutting edge of where people really enter into into pain like this because this is this is where Jesus is isn't it I mean it's it's where it's what it's about church has been very good at that over the years of course in so many ways but uh we've got we've got to be there so dave you did have church visitors though and you wrote about in your book about a lady that came to offer some healing yeah it was really interesting we talked a little bit last time didn't we about um the sort of theology side of when you've expected um when you've expected something to happen and then you're having to think, you know, this isn't where we are. And, and basically got to a point where we went, 
you know, we're kind of accepting. And what we're bothered about here is that our son knows that he's loved and that he's comfortable. And so we're not going to be sort of praying over him. People want to pray. They can pray quietly. We knew loads of people were praying for us. That was very, very powerful. And we really kind of felt that all the way through. But this lady came along and basically said, well, you know, I want to pray for healing um, and didn't really listen to us. And we basically had to stop her from what I can remember. And that felt like my wife has this phrase that she picked up years ago in our church, which is about people before projects. You've got to treat people as people. You've mm. got to listen to them. You've got to treat them with a bit of dignity. And you can end up being really, really clumsy by just going, I think I've got a solution. I'm just going to kind of lay this over the top of your situation here. So, you know, re really bad call, essentially. And we had a few situations like that where you think you can't lose sight of people and what they're going through and actually taking time to find out about that and listening to them. And I think, you know, certainly made me think that I kind of shudder a bit to think if I'd been in one of these situations and it was someone else's kid and I'd been in that old mindset, would I have, you know, done some damage? But I like to think I would have at least taken the time to listen and at the very least ask permission for something like that, which she kind of barreled in and that, that, that wasn't helpful at the time. How do we stop the church from making people projects then, Colin? What is the... Is there actually a solution there? I mean, there's a, there's a real, I, I'm just going to sound so simplistic, but it's just the truth. You just, you just look at the world as Jesus does. And I think so often we get so caught up in, in, in church as though this institution or faith as this methodology of life when actually Jesus was very laid back. He just walked around loving people. It doesn't seem there were any great formulas involved in his life. He certainly wasn't going out of his way to build any structures, systems or anything like that, or, or actually even impress people. He used to tell people just, okay, but don't tell anyone what I've just done for you. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's as simple as that, isn't it? It's just looking at someone with the, with the, with the love of Christ. I mentioned just now that I've, we've had to walk this road and the, the greatest, well, it's a privilege actually walking it, walking this road, but uh, it, it, I actually, it's going to sound bizarre, but I actually love it when some of my friends who've lost kids or whatever, they, they turn around to me and I say, how are you doing? And they, they swear. And that may sound really awful, but what it means is we've cut through all the religiosity, all the pretense, and we've, we've now got real. And you can be comfortable with me, and I just count that a real honour. And that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about being as real as Jesus was with people, yeah. just being real and loving and not having the answers. And even if you think you know the answers, don't bother sharing it at this moment in time. People who don't want answers, they just want love. Yeah. yeah. Now, Dave, you had a, speaking about special moments and, and times that you had a very lovely moment when Louise was holding bed as his bed was being changed. That this is, this was so lovely, this story. And, and I know it's, it's created a, a, a brilliant picture for you as well. Yeah. Um, cause it's interesting. We're, we're, we're in his room. We're in the hospice at this point. Ben is kind of very limited as much as it was lovely that um, he was really himself right up to the end. But, you know, like he couldn't see, for example, his sight had completely gone by this point. And um, so Louise was holding him and he just said, um, you know, 
something like, you know, do you want to see this smile, mummy, or something like that. Yeah. Um, I can't even remember if he knew we were going to take a picture, but somehow it just sort of came out. And um, and so we're able, you know, got a picture of him a few days before he he, he passed, you know, in Louise's arms, you know, doing the best smile he could he could do. And just think that um, the character that he had is just amazing. Because one of the things that I think, like, so you don't want to end up with cliche, but I kind of think Ben did everything he could with what he had. And it felt like that. It felt like when he was with people until the end, he was interested in them. He would chat to them. And so, um, you know, that that's the sort of thing that just reminds you a bit of when everything else is stripped back, that that, that character was still there. You then are awoken um, a while later after you've been sent to bed and uh, they tell you that Ben is on his final final hours with us uh, here on Earth. and But th there's still hope, isn't there, that you had in in faith in the sense of not that he would be healed but actually he he loved jesus himself yeah i mean i i remember one of the times that we took him to church and you know he was very sort of larger than life he was very much an extrovert and i remember the guy that was leading the church with me at the time going nice to see you here ben and going nice to see you brian and it was kind of like you know and but i also remember and i think i know it took people's breath away actually where this was probably a few months into his treatment. And so he was still fairly mobile because that was one of the things that really went later on. And, you know, he was, he was in a, you know, in a, in a buggy or a wheelchair, but he was kind of there. He hadn't got his hair anymore. So he'd be there with like one of those buff scarf things on, basically kind of bouncing around during, during worship. And I remember, I think that just, stunned a few people to see that it you know in a very simple childlike way this was a genuine thing for him you know he had like over 40 sessions of radiotherapy with you know with with worship music on and so he'd had that to listen to it's an amazing thing actually he's in a room by himself because no one else can be in the room because it's kind of you know you're getting blasted essentially so they got these amazing play specialists who would kind of get them ready for this, and that he would hold a bit of um, a bit of material, which would then go under the door, and Louise would be holding the other end, so that if he needed to feel a bit of reassurance, he could kind of pull it and feel the pull of the other person. But so yeah, I think um, he he was always in a faith environment, and you know, in a childlike way, I, I do believe that was very real to him. And at uh, his funeral you had on a, sl a slogan on a piece of wood that was given to you by local sawmill ben luck keeping jesus busy that is brilliant right yeah well this was this was louise again louise I, I do remember there were so many ways in which she was kind of creative during this time when i think that any creative creativity that i had had kind of shut off a bit really and this kind of thing popped in her mind where she thought, um, you know, you have this phrase, don't you, about rest in peace, right? Kind of lovely. Seems to make a bit more sense of an old dear. Just kind of thought, rest in peace doesn't really cut it for Ben, you know? So I remember Louise saying, well, I prefer keeping Jesus busy. You know, that's a bit more, that's a bit more his style. That's what he would be doing. You can kind of imagine him kind of going, all right, Jesus, you know? Um, so so yeah that was something that we we had put together and it just felt like a 
very then very kind of a good way to sum up you know thinking about him being in heaven and I remember having a bit of a picture in my mind after he died of um we've got a photo of him with the um the big children's um hospital mascot which is a bear and so obviously the bear is massive right and you've got kind of got little Ben and it, and it was almost like the, that picture came back to mind for a sense of that's how it is with with God now that you know kind of you know he's there by God's side in heaven so things like that you know mean a lot when you're kind of processing this sort of stuff how would you help other and maybe you have had the opportunity to help other parents who've gone through um a child's death Dave I mean what is it that we could do to best support people during this the same period of time or a similar period of time that you've been through I think if we just go back to what Colin said a moment ago about his friends who've been through this, who feel they can be brutally honest with them. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that, well, Colin's, he's there and he's listening. So it's, it's almost easier to say what not to do. You know, we talked about the woman in the hospice. If you go in with your agenda, these are the things that I think are going to fix it. That's not going to help. Mm-hmm. Um, not being there is even worse and and i'll be honest people are more likely to make the mistake of not being there mm. than saying something clumsy and and i will always say you don't you aren't going to know what to say nobody knows what to say because there isn't a right thing to mm. say so just sort of saying i'm here can i help you know and maybe to say what would be helpful i remember afterwards people saying you know asking us you know what would be helpful and i'd tell them if there was something um so i think being present being available and listening um and there's a there's a real discomfort in that let's be honest of um being with somebody in pain is very hard being with somebody in pain and just um listening or even being in silence that's really hard um but that's what that person's going to need it gives them permission to say nothing or say what they need to say or say what's going to be helpful um and i think that's incredibly powerful because we're we're made to need each other we're called as church to be there for each other and um unfortunately what happens sometimes is people don't know what to do so they withdraw and i'm afraid we have some experience of that and uh, that's the biggest thing to avoid i mean it... <laughs> I, I love what you're saying, Dave, because in some ways it's so simple, in other ways it's so profound, because for most of us, we don't know what to do, and therefore we, we go missing, and uh, I mean, that, that's the worst thing you can do, and it's not going to say anything, and actually, so much of my time has just been spent with my friends just saying, mate, I, I don't know what to say. I, I can't pretend to relate to this because I can't. I have no idea. It must suck. I know that, but I have no idea. And he goes, yeah, I know. You can't, but you're here. And that, that, that is, that's it, isn't it? It's just, just being present, being there, just uh, not, not claiming any sort of great insight or necessarily yeah. having much to say at all, but just being there and being real and allowing someone else to be real too. I want to, <coughs> this, this is... Ah, this is this is tough to share, but I'll share it anyway. It's a little different. Another friend of mine died a few years ago, and I went to see him. We were sitting there. I, I said to him, 
Keith, it looks to me as though you're dying. And he sighed this sigh of relief. And he just said, oh, Colin, I've been longing to talk to someone about this. He said, but everyone comes in and tells me to hold on in faith. I haven't a clue what they mean. He says, yeah, I'm dying. And, uh, and we, we talked and we cried and we laughed. And because actually death is a painful thing. It's a loss. It's a tragedy. It's wrong. But then heaven is glorious. It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's what we're made for. And so to be able to go through, it, it was one of the most privileged experiences of my life, sitting there talking eternity with someone on the doorstep of eternity. And yet the tragedy was folks were not allowing him to do that because somehow to admit that we die is to lack faith or something. I don't know what it is because we die. I mean, it's what happens. <laughs> one of us will die soon and then the next one and then that's it. All three of us will die. But that's not a terrible thing. And, and you know, that just happens. But we have a hope. And so to be able to talk and to be able to just be honest and, and, and really address it. I just, I, that, that's the glory of our faith. We can be honest, even yeah. when we're feeling utterly sort of overwhelmed, whatever, we can be honest about it. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. And I think um, next time, Dave, I would like to talk to you about the fact that um, some people <coughs> might have said, where was your faith in all of this? Why, why didn't he, you know, why, why wasn't he raised from the dead? Or did people say, this is next time, we're not going to go into it now. Um, but yeah. just kind of the idea of like, this is a child dying, not an adult dying. You know, my friends get told, I know they're going to die. But how, as a Christian, yeah. do you actually deal with the fact it was a child? It was someone you would, we would all consider that um, has gone before their time. But we'll do that next time, Dave, if that's okay. Mm. So um, this has been really, really great. So thank you so much indeed, again, for your time, Dave. Thank you to the guy next door, Sanding. We've I've really enjoyed his uh, chorus um, as part of that as well. And, he does it well, uh, doesn't he? He does it brilliantly. So, um, and thank yeah. you, Colin, as well, for uh, for that helpful insight as well. You've it's, been... it's, a privilege, it's a privilege to be here. And Dave, just thank you for being so open and honest and, um, you know, and, and, and going through this yeah because it must be painful even now going back over it again so thank you i guess what one thing i'd just say without like opening up a whole new lot more stuff is that our experiences um if you're honest you you enable other people to be honest mm. and that's one of the things that's come out um of what's happened and the church in my experience since writing this book struggles to really want to engage with this but then when it does um mm. it's powerful so we we had a friend who's um who leads fish ponds baptist back back down in bristol yeah. who said come over and do some stuff do a saturday night do a sunday morning and people were able to talk about their experience they were able to bring friends who'd lost a child you know people were able to talk about mental health because we'd kind of opened the we'd taken the lid off yeah and i think that that really is important and i think um all three of us you know as reflecting earlier you know since we were together back in the day we've all had some stuff happen mm. and you know what um loads of people who were our friends back then they've had some stuff happen we can talk a lot more next time about what that means for faith but i think being able to talk about it is really important and um being able to share that in some way and so for us 
we kind of don't have much choice because um, it's there, it's in our life, but it does then open the door for other people, hopefully to feel able to do that as well. And we can try and um, make some sense of it together or just work out how, how we're going to manage the moment. Let's talk about that next time. You've been listening to the Basement Years podcast with Dave Luck, Colin Piper and myself, Simon Tuck. Down, down, down.